Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Welcome to the show. We are thrilled to have you listening to us. And I'm Denise, a genealogist obsessed with true crime. And I'm Zelda, and I'm just delightful. Yes, you are. You're so delightful. <laughs> <laughs> so how have you been, Zelda? You know, it's been an amazing week. I took part in a women's leadership conference this week, so I'm feeling ready to take the lead. Um, and I get to see my BB nephew uh, today, and so that's always a good day. How about you? It's been, you know, I'm just having the weeks. For the third time in the past uh, six months, our dishwasher's not working properly. Oh, God. So last night, we decided we weren't cooking dinner because we still had a pile of dishes that were waiting to go in the dishwasher, and so we hand-washed them all. And had dinner out because we didn't want to wash dishes like that again. Because <laughs> we're oh that lazy. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And this is a new dishwasher. We got it like four years ago. And we got I'm it because so the other one was sorry. starting to fall apart. And it was like, came with the house. It was like 15 years old. What the heck, I'm so people? so sorry. Oh, Grr. so frustrating. Yes. And then I'm still having health shit going stuff going on so oh like we don't swear freely in this program come on (laughs) how many times have i said fuck i mean i get in trouble did i ever tell you i get in trouble with my girls when i swear no (laughs) they'll say a word and give them away if they're not going to be tolerant i'll say something and my my youngest sweet pea goes mom that's a bad word you don't say that (laughs) you know my nieces and nephews don't even blink anymore they're like okay yeah well, I point out, I go, these are adult words. They're not good or bad. They have no value like that. But you are not old enough to say them, but I am. <laughs> it doesn't work, though. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> now they want to say them even more. <laughs> Especially with my sassy three who like to tell me like it is. Sometimes mm-hmm. I question my parenting because I made them too sassy. Mm-hmm. But that could just be genetic. Well, we have a guest again this week, Zelda. I love it when we have a guest. Oh my gosh, who do we get to talk to today? Well, today we get to talk to another podcaster. She's the host and creator of Haunting History. And she's even been on TV briefly talking about a true crime case. And I won't say which episode or anything like that because I know she doesn't want the whole world to know. But just know she's done that. Kathy Curtis from Haunting History Podcast. Good morning. morning. It's morning for me. It's not morning for you guys. Yeah, poor Kathy's out there in California. We just had the time change where we all sprung forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the worst day ever of the year. It Mm -hmm. is. I I, I just wish there was no um, daylight savings. Just cancel it and just have regular time all year round. I'm not one of these. Yeah, I'm not one of these who wants daylight savings year round. No. I just don't want to have it, period. Mm-hmm. So, so how that's funny. You would. Preach. I'm good. That's funny that you won't say the TV show I was on. It's it's. Here's the thing: is I was happy to promote um, people knowing about the case. It's a it's a case from 1980, 
and it's really it's the disappearance of Dorothy Scott, which is still unsolved. And it's believed that it can be solved with public information. People know something, and it's so it's not that I don't. It's funny. It's not my shining moment. I said my response is I was interviewed for over an hour and a half in these glaring lights. When I when they talk about like the lights for TV shows, I don't think anybody realizes that you're literally sitting in the sun. Like there's four or five different shining spotlights on you mm. and then they're asking you questions and you have no control of the editing. Mm-hmm. So no. <laughs> Like you get, you, you start at first, you're very aware that it's an interview, but as you keep talking, you start to lose the idea that it's an interview and you're having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And so you're not filtering yourself anymore. And I, <laughs> I just felt like I said really stupid things. I it thought you sounded of, great. It's oh, one of these, funny. these situations I was watching the show and I'm like, I know her. <laughs> and I, I sent know, and Kathy I actually, a message and I'm like, I just saw you on this. She's like, oh, and no. I, <laughs> I got a lot of those. I got a lot of people following me. I got DMs and people saying, oh, I just found your podcast. And it was really sweet because they've never used a podcaster in any of their stories before. And the show's mm-hmm. been on for 12 seasons or something. Yeah. And they're very sweet. And they made sure that my tagline under my name had my podcast. So I did get a lot of followers from it and people commenting. But I feel like those are the DMs that I skipped over. Like the the first line was like, I saw you on that TV show. And I was like, goodbye. I don't, I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> when you're self-conscious about stuff. It yeah. Doesn't go. I mean, at, I work with the Orange County Sheriff on a lot of cases and he did really good. And he kept texting me the whole time he was there. He's like, we're here. So come here. And I was like, I don't want to. No, I don't know. I don't want to be on any more than I am. Thanks. Have fun. But you did great. So I'll have to talk to you later about how you got involved with the sheriff's office and helping them out. Hmm. Conversation for another time. It's a very, it's a pretty cool story. I, and, and he's literally after we're on year and a half of working together and we probably talk at least twice a day. Oh, wow. That's really cool. And you're not even psychic. No, (laughs) no, not even close. (laughs) I have, I have zero gifts. <laughs> so do you want to tell uh, tell um, our listeners about your podcast? Might as well. Uh, um, it's Haunting History Podcast, which the name is a little deceiving. Although at Halloween time, we always do stories on typically like crimes that happen that resulted in hauntings. Mm-hmm. But the majority of our stories are um, cases that still haunt us today. So they're usually stories of missing people or cold cases that um, are from as far back and we've done cases as far back as the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And what's it called again? Haunting History Podcast. Yeah. Okay, because I'm adding one. you to my list right now. Thank you. <laughs> there we it's, go. I'm, it's, it's a lot of fun. I host it with my daughter who, for the first year, we did not like make a point of letting people know that she was my daughter. And it ultimately came out. And I think people tried to figure it out, like who we were to each other. Um, but she keeps me, she keeps me in line. I, I was listening to one of your episodes and something you said, I'm like, that's her daughter. It's got to be her daughter. I, people, it's funny. People were trying to figure it out. We would get messages and go, how are you related to Haley? And I love Haley. Who's Haley to you? And I'm like, none of your business. Yeah. And I get that. If you're not putting that out there at the time, 
you know, mm-hmm. I, but I, I, I knew, I just didn't. knew. And I'm like, she's your daughter, isn't she? That must be yeah, fun. Yeah, now it's fun. Yeah, we, and, and it wasn't a conscious decision to hide it. Mm-hmm. We just kind of thought it really didn't matter how we were related or how we knew each other. And then it became a thing where people yeah. were trying to figure it out. And then we really didn't tell people. And then I don't even know what episode where it really came out. I think it was like a blooper thing that we did. And everyone's like, oh, that's her mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and another thing, um, Kathy is a genealogist as well. So my passion, yeah. my passion is not true crime at all. My passion is genealogy. Hey, I, I share that passion clearly. <laughs> Otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. Um, creating whole trees in two weeks, every two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard. I don't know how you do it. I don't either. There's times I'm like pulling out my hair, but that's a whole different story for another time. Do you, do you both work full time too? Mm-hmm. Well, I Zelda do. does. I, I'm a, I, I'm a stay at home mom right now. Um, yeah. And I'm trying to Which turn a full time job. Yeah. And I'm trying to turn genealogy into a career. Okay. And I'm, I've got um, a contract out right now with a company and I need to get all that information to them so I can get paid. So Good. my first Good client, first really paying client. So I'm working on it. Um, before we get started, I it has come to my attention via an email that Zelda and I need to clarify a few things about the show. This oh. is our corrections corner, kind of. We received a comment on our webpage regarding the Black Dahlia. Now, this person was very passionate about the subject and felt we approached things all wrong. Oh, well. Oh, all gosh. Wrong. Maybe all they wrong. should start a podcast and talk about it. There you go. So I want to <laughs> clarify the following. Number one, although I do have a master's degree in psychology, I am not a psychotherapist. So on most things, I am not comfortable diagnosing somebody's condition, much less somebody who's in the past and I don't have enough information on. I'll explain in a minute, like people who are dead. Um, Zelda and I make our opinions known on the show, but these are opinions that you are free to disagree with. And we love a conversation, a comment about it, but telling us that we are clueless is not going to be useful. Instead, if we're missing a piece of information, please share it with us so we can broaden our knowledge base. So you don't need to harangue us on something we have no evidence on. And this applies to all episodes. So if we miss something, tell us and give us a link to the information. Otherwise, start your own podcast because this is ours. And what it was is I was told this person goes, went on and on about how Elizabeth Short's mother was clearly a narcissist. And we missed the whole boat on that. Why on earth would we even talk about that? That's ridiculous. Right? And we were wrong to say she was a strong woman because she was an awful mother. Okay. That's not necessarily mutually exclusive. Right. Exactly. Which just was kind of saying. my response. And Kathy oh, just well. recently covered the Black Dahlia. Did you see I anything did. about her mother, Phoebe, being a narcissist? No. I, no, I, I actually, I didn't talk about the mom, really. And uh-huh. I don't know what that has to do with really anything. Well, because we got into the tree. And so we were talking about all the pieces. So apparently that bothered her or Goodness. him. And so I just want to make it clear. these The, the opinions are our own. 
you are free to have your own opinion and disagree with us, but this is No matter how stupid it is, you can have your opinion. And if we get a fact wrong, (laughs) please let us know. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you can't please all of the people. So I oh, no, just, no. I, I feel like we accomplished something in somebody having a reaction. So yes. yay. Which is a good thing. And hopefully, you know, and I, I responded to them after going through. And I'm just like, mm, you know, it's our opinion. This is it. But if you have evidence that she was a narcissist, please send it our way. I would love to know that. Did they say what their credentials were or how they knew? Of course not. No, of course. So I I listen to a podcast that has a corner called Hate Mail. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That's and it has so like the funny. music that hate like music before it, like mm-hmm. this like spooky music, and they're all hate mail. And I was like, oh, it's that's every podcast should have that because mm-hmm. people have so many strong opinions on how you do this and how you do that. And you're like, oh, well, what's your podcast? I'd love to listen to it. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, crickets. what was funny about this one though is we did. Um, we did revisiting the Black Dahlia, basically a rerun during the holidays because we hadn't aired it in over a year or whatever. And that's all it was, a rerun. <laughs> yeah. And I got another comment on that from the same person going on, you still haven't learned. No. And there really is no hope for us, Denise. <laughs> I mean, at this point. We'll never learn. I mean, well, let's funny. face it. There's... We get on this. We get on this thing. What every couple of weeks? You spend <laughs> countless hours researching genealogy. We make zero dollars. In fact, we yeah. spend more <laughs> than we make. We, if we thing. start to earn enough for that we can fun. hire fact checkers and make you know somebody <laughs> to double check stuff for us, researchers, then <laughs> talk to us. But we don't you know, earn a dime, and we. We come in the negative every time. <laughs> and you can you can write us off as crackpots because I'm sure my family has. So <laughs> Did you write back and say you still haven't told me what your podcast is? Basically, yeah. <laughs> well, something along those lines. You still haven't told me how you know came to this information and showed me any evidence on this. They're probably hate listening to this, you know. <laughs> so if you are, you're outed. Okay. So you can see that comment on the website if you want, if you look under the Black Dahlia, just for your own. (laughs) But feel free to leave us positive comments if you want, or any other comment. I don't care. (laughs) If it's rude, it will get deleted, though. We we do love praise, though. I mean, let's face it, we do live for praise. It's been a long time since we've gotten any reviews. So we're looking for reviews so we can share them on the show, people. Please do. Yeah. So we are about to get started and we have a very interesting one that is kind of oddly entertaining. There are twists, there are turns, there Mm -hmm. are, it's a roller coaster of emotion, I have to say. So do I get to say the name? Yes, you do. I have to tell you, the story of Amy Archer Gilligan had sparked the imagination of one writer so much that he wrote a play called Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm-hmm. This is also the story of the triumph of investigative journalism and an intrepid obituary writer. <laughs> so where shall we start? Okay, well, let's start with the birth of little Amy Dugan on Halloween 1968. Or maybe 1860. I'm sorry, 1868. I keep doing that. I don't know why I yeah. do that. I'm I'm just living in this century, I guess. Okay. 
Halloween 1868 or maybe 1869 or even possibly 1873. I need Denise to ring ring in with this because I, it was all over the map what I was finding. Well, a- Amy uh, changed her age for everybody at one point. She was born on, on Halloween 1868. I know this for a fact because she was in the 1870 census with her parents and she was two years old. Um oh. But yeah, it got changed to 1873 by the 1900 census when she was answering the questions. And so forever she will be young. I find it interesting she was born on Halloween. That's so that's yeah, that is kind of considering. Yeah. Considering what she ended up doing. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. insane. Well, and honestly, I'm surprised they remembered her age at the 1870 census because she was the eighth of 10 children. And seemingly had a fairly normal childhood, but I also know Denise had dug up some interesting things that we'll hear about later. So I'm excited about Oh, yeah. And by the way, she was the ninth of 12. I have two kids to tell you about you don't know about. Apparently. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And at least one of them's older. (laughs) Yeah. So um, she even attended this. I'm trying to make a joke here. It's not really that good, but she even attended the new Britain normal school, which is really just the old timey name for a school to train teachers. But I still think it's funny. Um, so <laughs> I never understood why they're called normal schools. To, <laughs> who knew she would grow up to one day run a facility referred to as the murder factory. So I'm going to leave her childhood at that because Denise has way more exciting stuff to talk about. <laughs> but in 1897, Amy Dugan married James Archer and she took his last name, but gave him a daughter, Mary J. A few years later, the young couple got their first job as caregivers for an elderly man, John Seymour. They moved into his home in Newington, Connecticut, and they seemed to have taken pretty good care of him from 1901 to 1904 when he passed away. So this is when John Seymour's heirs and the Archer family came up with a great idea. There were so many elderly in need of care with no one to help them. What if, okay, what if they turned this grand house into a boarding house for elderly people? The light bulb went on, even though I'm not sure they had electricity, but the Archers rented the home, offered room board and care for the elderly for a fee, and ran the home for several years under the name Sister Amy's Home for the Elderly. (laughs) <laughs> I actually had to look that up because I thought that was like a comical name. I mean, like who, it doesn't sound like, like if somebody said, come up with an old timey name for an old folks home, <laughs> that would be it. Right. So all was going swimmingly. Then a few years later in 1907, Seymour's heirs decided to sell the house. I mean, they were based in California. This was Connecticut. They were just kind of tired of long distance thing. So the archers moved to Windsor, Connecticut and used their savings to purchase a residence of their own at 37 Prospect Street. And the house is still there today, by the way. Mm-hmm. They soon converted it into their own business, the Archer Home for the Elderly and Infirm. So I have to say, this was an idea that sold like hotcakes. Because in mm-hmm. the early 1900s, there weren't a lot of places like this. Because traditionally, as you know, I'm sure, generations all live together in a family home with the mm-hmm. younger generations caring for the older ones. But the late 1800s saw a lot of mobility with the younger folk moving west for better economic opportunities, leaving their aging parents behind. When these parents became too infirm to care for themselves, they often had no one at all to turn to. So this beginning to the modern day nursing home was a really cutting edge idea, actually. 
and residents could pay on either a weekly basis or for one flat fee of $1,000, they were guaranteed care for as long as they breathe. Mm -hmm. I want to put an asterisk there because there's more coming. Okay. (laughs) They were also encouraged to make the archers the beneficiaries of their estates so they could manage their finances more easily after they passed. Amy Archer attended church weekly, made generous donations to the church, and was generally thought of as a pillar of the local community. And I am sad to say it was a Catholic church. Oh, yeah. Very sad about that. Very Catholic. Makes me mad. Like, too many, too many bad Catholics out there. Just stop it, people. Okay. Okay. The Archers had their first legal troubles in 1909 when the family of a resident sued them for $5,000, claiming that they kept their relative in unsanitary conditions. And the resident's family won, by the way. One resident, Lucy Durand, was so outraged by the conditions she was forced to live in that the Humane Society was called in. Now, back in those days, the Connecticut Humane Society looked out for the welfare of children and other people possibly subject to abuse. Well, Amy Archer was so pissed, she got two doctors to declare Lucy insane and committed her to the retreat for the insane in Hartford. Lucy was later (laughs) released when she was found to not be insane after all. Huh. Hmm. Go figure. So odd. Hmm. So in a side about the Connecticut Humane Society, I just found this interesting because women power, women leadership. (laughs) Gertrude O. Lewis founded the Connecticut Humane Society in 1881. In a day and age when women did not yet have the right to vote, this teenager (laughs) decried Mm -hmm. the widespread callous treatment of children and animals. As demand for improved social conditions grew, she transformed her dismay into responsible action to improve the lives of vulnerable people. For 84 years, CHS was the only statewide organization offering protective services to children until the state of Connecticut developed the Department of Children and Families in 1965. That was the point at which their focus shifted entirely to animals, according to their website. I did not know that. Isn't that crazy? That is. And as another side that kind of ties into that, the original child abuse cases, I don't know if you knew this or if we talked about it before, but the original child abuse cases in the United States were actually brought under the animal abuse laws because there weren't any child abuse laws. Oh, so word. Crazy. And I would quote that, but I learned it sometime in law school, so I can't actually tell you like <laughs> exactly which case it was, but I remember it sticking with me. I'll so, believe you on this. Yeah. I Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm sure we'll hear a comment from a, a dear listener, if, if not. Okay, enough sides about history. In 1910, tragedy struck. James Archer, 50 years old, died. The official cause of death was Bright's disease, which was kind of a generic term for kidney diseases. Mm -hmm. Oddly, James Archer had never before been diagnosed with any kind of kidney disease. And as a person who suffers kidney stones, let me tell you, if you have kidney disease, you know it. By a mere turn of good fortune, I'm sure, uh, Amy had taken out a life insurance policy on him just a few weeks before his death, so she was able to continue running the Archer home. Still, love found Amy a second time in the form of Michael Gilligan, a 56-year-old widower with four grown sons. Mm -hmm. They married in 1914, and after only three short months, tragedy struck again. Michael Gilligan died suddenly of valvular heart disease, with a secondary cause of acute bilious attack, a.k.a. really bad indigestion. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thankfully for Amy, when his will was located and submitted to probate, he had left his entire estate to Amy. Lucky girl. That's what I say. How about you guys? Well, that's what we all want, right? Sugar daddy. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. I need a sugar daddy. One foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. Okay. So now the Windsor Historical Society had a few great articles on this. And I relied on that heavily along with some newspaper articles that Denise had shared with me earlier. So Michael Gilligan's death was just one of many plaguing the facility. Between 1907 (laughs) and 1916, 60 residents died at the home. 48 of them in the prior five years alone. One death in particular, that of Franklin Andrews, seemed to raise some suspicion about the Archer Home's operations. One day after working on the lawn around the house and appearing in perfect health, 60-year-old Franklin Andrews died. After going through his papers, Andrews' sister Nellie Pierce found information regarding a $500 loan to Amy Archer Gilligan and letters showing Amy pressing Mr. Andrews for more money. So she contacted the district attorney who, as usual, did not listen to women about this or many other matters. So this was in 1914. No, it was not until a man said what the fuck that anything was done. And that investigation (laughs) took two years. Okay. Yeah. So Carlin Gosley was a correspondent for the newspaper, the Hartford Courant and Windsor resident who wrote obituaries about Windsor residents. As another aside, the Hartford Courant is the oldest continuously operating newspaper in the U.S., having been established in 1764. Wow. It still operates today. Oh, and the word Courant means newspaper. So it was basically the Hartford newspaper. I just think that's why I like that. Okay. So for some years, obit writer Gosley, who was a friend of Michael Gilligan's, had been troubled by the frequency of deaths in the Archer home. Now, true, many of the residents were elderly, but Gosley was sufficiently disturbed to investigate the poison registers that every drugstore was required by law to keep. He found that Amy Archer Gilligan had made multiple purchases of, can we say it together? Arsenic! (laughs) (laughs) At W.H. Mason's drugstore in Windsor on the Broad Street Green, citing rat problems and bed bugs. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think you use arsenic to treat bed bugs. But no, I'm like, so. how do you do that? You like put it yeah. in a spray bottle and spray the mattress like that. Doesn't and then make... do you want to sleep on a mattress with arsenic? Seriously, yeah. that doesn't it... sound like a good plan at all. So this was an obituary writer that figured out that there was just mm-hmm. too many deaths in the same place. Yes. Did he go looking for the pharmacist or did this like how did that? Well, how apparently did he get the connection. He was at the pharmacist. From what I understand from this, he was at the pharmacist. And then he was like. Oh, he, they had said, oh, yeah, this guy was just in here filling a prescription and, who had pre- recently died. And he was like, wait a second. Is this the same pharmacy that this tome uses? And they're like, yeah. And, and then just things started like the dominoes started falling. So he just kind of happened to be in the right pharmacy at the right time asking the right questions. Crazy. So, yeah, it was totally crazy. So Nellie Pierce, Franklin Andrews' sister, remember, then approached Gosley with her thoughts on the subject. And Gosley was like, yo, dudes, we got a story, which got the investigative <laughs> journalists all salivating. So, I'm so sh- I'm just imagining him saying that back in, you know, the 1960s. <laughs> I just like that. <laughs> Fellows, perhaps we have a correspondence. I don't know how they would say this. I don't know. <laughs> Trying to be fancy here, and that's not my style. Okay. 
So Hartford Courant editor Clifford Sherman opened an investigation. Reporters reviewed years of Windsor death certificates, comparing death certificates of Archer Home residents with those of residents of the Jefferson Street Home for the Elderly in Hartford, which was a completely separate and unrelated facility that did similar work. Mm-hmm. They found that between 1907 and 1916, as we'd said, 60 residents of the Archer Home died, 12 of them between 1907 and 1910, 48 more between 1911 and 1916, a period when Amy Archer Gilligan's finances were under stress. Mm. Looking at the latter five-year period, the number of deaths at the Jefferson Street home in Hartford was similar, but the population there was seven times that of the Archer home in Windsor. So (laughs) functionally, their death rate was seven times higher. Of the same demographic, like the same elderly, Mm -hmm. yeah. Same everything else. Mm -hmm. So all the Archer House deaths, by the way, were examined post-mortem by a Dr. Howard King, who was not only Windsor's only medical examiner, he was also employed by Archer Gilligan as the house's resident physician. Oh. No autopsies were performed, and the residents were quickly embalmed. A bit of a conflict of interest there. One would think. So there was also a pattern emerging about the causes of death at the Archer home, stomach pathologies and sudden deaths. So of course, it didn't take a great leap of the imagination to get to poisoning and revisiting the poison registered revealed that Archer Gilligan had purchased 10 ounces of arsenic just before Michael Gilligan's death, which is enough to kill over a hundred people. So two years later in 1916, the evidence was finally enough for a state police investigation. Now, I was a little sour about this at first. And then I'm like, okay, but their police force was literally only 11 years old at that point. So, I mean, they were still learning how to do these things. And they didn't have the forensics that we have today either. Yeah. And and there there wasn't even a thing called forensics really at that point, you know? Very baby science at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the whole Sherlock Holmes thing was, you know, it still seemed in the realm of fantasy. So... The bodies of several former residents of the Archer home were exhumed and examined. All five had died of poisoning, either arsenic or strychnine. Local merchants were able to testify that Amy had been purchasing large quantities of arsenic, again, supposedly to kill rats. Now, at the same time, because women are the bomb in this story, a female private investigator, Zola Bennett, was hired by the Connecticut State Police to go undercover in the house as a resident, gathering evidence of the living conditions inside and Archer Gilligan swindling her residence. A woman did this. I just have to say. I love that. Okay. So a look into Gilligan's will established that it was actually a forgery written by Amy. No (laughs) one saw that coming, I bet. Imagine Mm -mm. that. Mm -mm. It was later testified that Franklin Andrews' stomach contained enough arsenic to kill half a dozen strong men. Amy Archer Gilligan. I'm sorry, what, Kathy? That makes me so sad. Like, he was was super supportive of her, too, right? Yeah. Like, he he Mm -hmm. loved living there. He he helped out around the house. How old was he again? 60? 60. Mm Mm-hmm. That's sad. So heartbreaking. Yeah. And he apparently had some aches and pains, but he was still quite active. And and honestly, for a six-year-old, was kind of the picture of health until he dropped dead from, you know, enough arsenic to kill half a dozen men. So, yeah. 
So Amy Archer Gilligan was arrested on May 8th, 1916, and charged with the murder of Franklin Andrews and four other residents of the home. So Amy's trial began in June of 1917. So that's about a year later when the trial actually started. Mm -hmm. The case headlined in newspapers all over the country. Testimony included that in many cases, the victims themselves were sent on errands to the drugstore to buy the poison that would later be used to kill them. She had bodies taken out of the home and buried or embalmed as soon as possible with the excuse of not upsetting the other residents. They usually did the body removals at night as well. Mm-hmm. And that was testimony from the neighbors who noticed a lot of bodies being moved out of the house at midnight. So, yes. Yeah. Dr. Howard King spoke on her behalf since he refused to admit that he could have overlooked so many murders. Now, this is what I find interesting because I was kind of like, I mean, he seemed like he would be a part of it, right? You know, and financially at least, right? Yeah, he was he was paid very well to be their resident physician. But apparently the police were I mean, okay, now he is a man. And I have a feeling the district attorney looked at this and said, if we take our medical examiner and slap him in prison for this, what else is going to get called into question? You know, like, is are we opening up a a can of worms? So they basically, you know, let him just look really damn dumb and he didn't serve any prison time. That really sucks because, you know, he was making money Mm -hmm. for turning the other way. Yeah. 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 Well, and I have to say, I'm surprised, given the time, that they didn't sell the bodies, you know, because... For scientific research or something, mm-hmm. right? Well, if they would have done that, they would have found the cause of death, though, right? Oh, that's probably true, because when you're prepping a body, either for scientific mm-hmm. research or to make a skeleton for sale, that would release the arsenic and probably kill the people doing the... Right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that would make sense. So they did the sensible thing and just buried them, I guess. So four weeks later, Amy Archer Gilligan was convicted and sentenced to hang. She and her lawyers appealed that conviction and that appeal was over. um, The conviction was overturned, not the appeal. The second trial began in June of 1919. Amy insisted on her innocence. Her daughter, Mary, even said her mother was innocent, but also not in her right mind because she was addicted to morphine. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, sure she is, sweetie. So Archer Gilligan pleaded insanity and then agreed to plead guilty to second degree murder for one count and sentenced to life imprisonment. In 1924, she was transferred to the Connecticut General Hospital for the Insane in Middletown, where she worked in the cafeteria. Oh, God. But she also worked in the laundry at one point. So she wasn't only in the cafeteria, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She Her personality, though, people said that she was like a sweet Christian woman, right? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, she was a pillar of the community and she actually paid for the funerals for some of the people she killed. She sent their family flowers. Yeah. Yeah, The thing that always struck me as odd is that nobody suspected her just because of her personality, that she was like she carried a Bible with her. She was always very sweet and soft spoken. Mm -hmm. Like, that's why she was not who you would think of as a murderous tyrant killing old people. It didn't come off that way. It came off as, she came off as sweet, right? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And her, I always find it weird that, and this is so, uh, I guess it's the same nowadays too with the media. Every time they talk about the daughter in all the articles I found, they say that she was pretty. Like they add that, her pretty oh, daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I find that so funny because like, 
do they still do that today? Like, is it, do they reference like appearances when they talk about someone all the time? I guess they do. Yeah, they do. It hasn't changed like, a whole lot. I, although I will say I saw a picture of her daughter. She was gorgeous. <laughs> it's not, it's so weird that they commented on it. It's the same thing. Like, um, the Wineville murders here in California, it was a big story. Mm-hmm. All the articles referred to him as being dapper and all that. Stuff. Like who gives a shit what they yeah. look like? <laughs> Like, they murdered people. Let's stop talking about how they look. Mm-hmm. Although I will say sometimes how they look is kind of relevant because it might draw people in. So if somebody's dapper and is attractive, people might look at them and go, oh, well, that can't be a monster. Right. Like, a, a pretty person doesn't kill people. Right. And I, I think people really believe that, even though there's been plenty of pretty people killing people. <laughs> yeah, they're not, like, trolls coming out of the gutter. Then you would know they're murderers if they all yeah. look like that, right? Yeah. It'd be too obvious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a murderer would be successful if they look like a murderer. Right. Yeah, go ahead and finish up Zelda there. Uh, Well, the only thing I had left to say is that she stayed at the Connecticut General Hospital for the Insane in Middletown until her death on April 23rd, 1962. Yeah. And that is the big, broad overview story of Amy Archer Gilligan and her murder factory. And and Zelda, you got most everything, although I will fill fill in some blanks, but um, Mm -hmm. particularly about her husband's and what happened to daughter Mary. And then we'll get into her family. We'll start with her first husband, James Henry Archer. He He was the son of Irish immigrants, John and Bridget Archer, born in the small community of Hoosick, New York, and one of several siblings. Prior to marrying Amy, James Henry lived in Vermont working as a train dispatcher for the Burlington and Rutland Railway. And in fact, when he died, they posted an obituary of his, about his death in Vermont because he was much beloved in that community. So she married him when she was 29 and he was 39 at the Catholic wedding ceremony that you mentioned at St. Anthony's Church in Litchfield, Connecticut. And then a couple of years later, it's a 1900 census, James's mother, Bridget, was living with him as well as two boarders. And I have questions about the boarders and I never had a chance to follow up because one of them was six years old and hmm. did not seem related to anybody in the house. But I also didn't have a whole lot of chance to dig and see. But I do have James's obituary um, from the Hartford Courant on February 12th, 1910. And I'm going to read part of it. Um, James H. Archer, proprietor of the Archer House in Windsor, died last night after a long illness. He was a train dispatcher for many years and for nine years up to three years ago was employed at the Hartford Division of the New York, New Haven and Hartford Railroad. He resigned on account of ill health. He leaves a wife and one daughter, Mary Archer, and a sister, Mrs. Charles Burnell in Rutland, Vermont. Mr. Archer was born in Hoosick Falls and was 51 years old. Now, they were never able to find out if she, Amy, actually killed him. James also left a will, which I found. Mm. It was signed on December 9th, 1908. So over a year before he died. And he made Amy the executor, giving everything over to her and did not include a remarriage clause that you sometimes saw back then. Mm-hmm. So basically, she could remarry, do whatever. She got to keep everything. Now, in the 1910 census, I found Amy living with her daughter and 14 inmates at the Archer house. Four of them actually, and I I say four of them died in the house. I think actually five of them died in the house. Mm. Two later that year, two in 1912 and one in 1914. And I did ask it because Kathy's like, what can I do? What can I contribute? (laughs) 
You were like, we just want you here on the show with us. Um, and I asked her if she could find out what happened to the others in the house. And I know she had a hard time finding anything, including the staff members. So, Kathy, were you able to find anything? Because I know it was not an easy task. No, it was not an easy task. And I, I couldn't even find obituaries. Like, I have a three-page list. I made a list of every single person that was ever in the houses. I did, wow. too. <laughs> every Every single one of them. Even like their death certificates, like those should be super. I, I'll show you mine. It's like crazy. It's literally three pages. And um, they, um, I was going to do a spreadsheet and I was like, okay, you're going too far. Um, <laughs> even the death certificates are all in an index. There's not actual copies of death yeah. certificates for any of them, which I found so odd. Like I was on like number 22 and I still had not find, found one death certificate. Yeah. So wow. I don't know if those are like in some historical society, which I believe it probably is. Like there's probably like a packet of all the death certificates of everybody. And for whatever reason, they're not online yet. But I find it, that was the oddest thing. That well, I, there's, a, I've never there's seen several that. states that have just indexes and you can't access their, and I, I find that one of the more frustrating parts of genealogy. Sometimes. Yeah, I want to see the paper. I want to see the signatures. Mm-hmm. I want to see the cause. I want to see all of it. I want to see it on a piece of paper. And I, couldn't find one and then I did I I have two newspaper accounts like I belong to two Mm -hmm. different ones I couldn't even find any of them in any of those which I thought was really weird too well did you find anything on anybody um not anything of interest except for like Franklin Andrews was the most interesting was and that was the sister that started it all right yeah well and I'm asking because I did a quick dig before we started and I found a couple things What'd you find? Okay. So I added that there was a fifth person who died in the house um, in 1910. And actually, there's another one who was. Okay. And that was um, George Donald. And I found his obituary. And it was interesting because it said he died at his son's house in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Was that Bridgeport? Yeah. Um, but he, according to the death index, he died in Windsor. And that was in June 1910. And he was a patient in that 1910 census. I also found the Bertha Hartenstein. She was 22 and an inmate. And she died in November 20th, 1916. So I don't know what, what where, though. Um, Bertha Hartenstein. Okay. They're wow. fun names, aren't they? <laughs> and then I did find Elaine... No, not Elaine. Eleanor Fuller. I found a small... She was 27 when she was in the home as an inmate, so as a patient. So it wasn't just elderly patients that she was taking. And I found a little article um, in the Hartford Current, and it said Eleanor Fuller had left Archer House after 1910 and was readmitted in November 1912. And there was this just little tiny thing. It said, Mrs. William Sherman of New Milford, Charles Smith of New York, John Miller of Rockville, and Miss Eleanor Fuller of Lakewood, New Jersey, are recent arrivals at the Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids. Miss Fuller was formerly an inmate of the home and is a sufferer from nervous troubles. And then I found a later mention during all the stuff about the trial saying that she was removed to a mental hospital from the home. Mm. It's just, it was so hard because most of the people, like Kathy's talking, could not find them. I couldn't find them in the census before or even after. 
Yeah, that was really weird, too. And you know what, too, is I wrote down, like, the cause of death. Mm -hmm. And, like, that doctor was so involved. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no way that he wasn't, like, that, and I can't, I'm afraid I'm going to say this wrong, arteriosclerosis. Arteriosclerosis. Like, if you go through the list, because literally I have page after page, and I have their um, date of birth, what year they died, and then their cause of death. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. one, two, three... Oh, and cerebral apoplexy. Yeah, apoplexy. Has like the same definition, but Mm -hmm. it's like a different name, like what really caused it. And I was counting through and I'm like, there's almost everybody has the same cause of death. Like one guy, one lady, Lydia Sherman was 92. Her cause of death was listed as old age. But everybody else had some kind of. Apoplexy. Yeah. Like it's apoplexy. It's crazy. Yeah. There you go. And I had my problems finding that there were two um, employees in the home in 1910. One was the nurse, Fanny Wheeler, who was 37. Yeah. Where'd she go? I could not find her. And the other was a servant, Rose Swan. Now I realized (laughs) after looking at stuff, her real name was Lenora Swan. And the census had her down as being white. She was actually a black woman. So it could be she was lighter skin. I don't know. Because it got marked differently a couple different times. But I found this little tidbit in the Hartford Current on the 15th of April, 1917. It says Rose Swan colored so a black woman was committed to the connecticut hospital for the insane at middletown yesterday by an order of the local probate court wow what was the date on that that was april 1917 wow so i I have a lot of different questions what took her there and i can't find her really i mean yeah i did find her shoot i think she died soon after i mean she did not wait what was her name what was Rose Swan? It was uh, Lenora R. Lenora R. Swan, and she was born around 1900. No, 1890. 1890. It's kind of shocking how many younger. I mean, most of the residents were older, but like one lady I found, Elizabeth Burbank, she was only 41 years old. Mm-hmm. And I think that I found her in a previous census, but the name Elizabeth Burbank is so. It's not, you know, a difficult name. Yeah. Um, but it looked like if if I found the right lady, she had ten children, only five of which survived. And oh. um, she died. They said that she died of locomotor ataxia, um, which I looked that up, which is an inability to precisely control one's own body movements. Oh, geez. And then for some reason, I have a question mark. I think she was buried at Warehouse Point. Which hmm. I couldn't find that. What is Warehouse Point? I, I know I found a city. They have a a, a pub crawl there, <laughs> but it didn't have any information about a cemetery. And I thought, well, what happened to her family? Yeah, it's just there were a lot went? of young patients, and that's what blew my mind. So in 1910, on the census, there was Eleanor who was 27, there was a Bertha who was 22, and there was a Clara Pratt who was 29, and Eunice Griswold who was 26. Weirdly, it was a lot of the women died younger. Carolyn Post was only 59. Elizabeth Hubbard, no, she was 82. And then the one that I was just talking about, Elizabeth Burbank, was only 41. Mm-hmm. It seems like the women were younger than the men. Well, and that was one of the things that caused some suspicion was that, you know, the original people who were dying were older. 
And then she, as she was getting more desperate, she started targeting younger, healthier, and wealthier people. Yeah. I mean, one patient in 1915 was a Charles Galgut who was 20. Yeah. What were they even doing there? Right. So many questions. Well, I mean, honestly, I mean, there weren't any really care homes, you know, for, for people with disabilities. And I can't, you know, 20 year olds have accidents and need a lot of help. True. And so. And it could be they were mm. having some mental issues as well, but it wasn't quite serious enough to go to the mental institution yet. So they were hoping. Another one. Which I thought was really, another young girl, Maud Lynch, mm-hmm. is only 33. Yeah. That's, uh-huh. I didn't even realize that until we just started talking about how the women that were there were younger and mm-hmm. died really quickly. Like, that's, mm-hmm. yeah. she didn't like ladies. She did not like the ladies. For the most part, although there was quite a few men who died, but they were all older for the most part. Or maybe she thought they were flirting with her husbands. Yeah, I mean, she seemed to have it out for the... Well, and it, let's be honest. A woman would a woman would have figured out figured it out faster than the men did. Mm-hmm. She was charming. Yeah. She probably charmed the men a lot. The women might have seen through it a lot quicker. That's mm-hmm. true. Okay, now we're going to go on to her second husband, Michael Gilligan, who <laughs> died too quickly, and it helped to lead to Amy's downfall. And I have a few notes. First of all, she was not married in 1914 to Michael Gilligan. They got married in November 1913. And I have their marriage announcement, which makes it seem like nobody was expecting the wedding. This is from the Hartford Current on November 27th, 1913. The many friends of Mrs. Amy E. Archer and Mr. Michael W. Gilligan will be surprised to learn that they were married on Tuesday by Reverend John J. Fitzgerald at St. Joseph's Church. There was no big to do about it. Just a quick little piece. Wow. But who was Michael? He had been a member of the Windsor Fire Company, even served as chief for two years, and he was also a son of Irish immigrants. His first wife died before 1900, leaving him a widower with five children to raise on his own. Now, his father was Patrick Gilligan, a very prominent member of the community, in part because at least one of his sons, it wasn't Michael, was like a selectman for the town. And he died in 1907. So his father, Michael's father, came over in 1850 with his mother. And I read the obituary for Patrick Gilligan, and I learned an interesting fun fact. It said that Patrick Gilligan and P.T. Barnum were friends up until Barnum's death in 1891. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they met while serving in the Connecticut legislature. Interesting. And developed a friendship. So Hmm. Michael Gilligan was a prominent member of the community people knew him they knew his whole family (laughs) now one of the people i do feel a bit sorry for is mary archer daughter of james and amy mary was born six days after james and amy wed on december 2nd 1897 and i triple checked that because i'm like going through and i'm like no this can't be right she was very holy and church going (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, usually you don't wait until like you're about to pop. Mm -hmm. Back to Mary Archer. She got married on May 10th, 1921 in New Haven, Connecticut to Robert Francis Eustace. And if I could have given her advice back then, I would say no, just say no, no. Mm. He was 32 and she was 23. So they're both adults. Mm -hmm. But she's just come through a whole lot of stuff. 
Yeah. And this wasn't his first marriage. He was a divorced man. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> this marriage didn't last very long. I found a divorce record for Robert and Mary in Oregon. Now, hmm. after reading the document and looking at the other facts in my possession, I have some thoughts. So here we go. Robert filed for divorce in Josephine County, Oregon, citing desertion in 1925. Mm. Mary still lived in New Haven, Connecticut. Oh. I don't think she ever left. So my theory is that he deserted her, Mm -hmm. filed for divorce where he lived in Oregon, and got the divorce without her knowing it. That's my theory. And he claims she deserted him when, in fact, it was the opposite. Wow. Or, I mean, it could be that she didn't want to go with him to Oregon, for all I know, but that's still not desertion on her part. Wow. He then got on a ship for Costa Rica. And in Costa Rica, he got married to Ursel, a woman from Oregon, that November. Interesting. Yeah. They would also divorce, by the way. By 1940, he did find a marriage that stuck, but he died in 1949 in Connecticut. Wow. Mary never got married again and she used the last name Eustace for the remainder of her life I would do if I were her Mm -hmm. and said she was a widow yeah even when he was still alive I can't say I blame her and he had yeah and he had come back to New Haven at one point so and she's like I'm a widow Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you're dead to me yeah yeah basically she died six years after her mother in 1968 oh that's so sad yeah how old was she when she died now, her, now her mom was actually fairly old when she died. Her mom died at the age of ninety three, and Mary died at the age of I'm just double checking seventy. Oh, okay. so she wasn't like young. And, yeah. And um, did um Amy die in that same hospital that she was yes. committed to? Yes, she she died on the twenty third of April, nineteen sixty two, at the hospital. And there's even an obituary on her death. Wow. And. I will share that on the website because it's fascinating. They talk about how great she was and how sweet she was. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how I got some of the information on Mary because I was having problems finding Mary Archer. You know, when you sometimes do a search, you're putting the names. It wasn't popping up on the index for Mm -hmm. marriages. And I'm like, where the heck is she? So I read, I found the obituary, right? And said, and her, you know, she leaves her daughter, Mrs. Mary Eustace. And I'm like, aha, ha. Now I have a last name and I was able to find everything. And it's not a common last name. So that made it a little bit easier. A lot easier. Yes. Okay. Amy Archer Gilligan was, and I think I said this wrong, but she was the sixth daughter and the ninth child to immigrant parents, James Duggan and Mary Ann Kennedy. But finding information on her parents' beginnings was not an easy task. Not only did they have common Irish names, but they also came to the United States when there was an influx of Irish immigrants. The Great Potato Famine. Between 1845 and 1855, over 2 million Irish citizens boarded ships to leave Ireland, with most coming to America. These were the types of people who would give some grandchildren of Irish immigrants heart attacks today. They were dirt poor with large families. Many came to the shores hungry and sick with disease. As with immigrants from south of the border today, many U.S. citizens were not thrilled at the influx. They feared them. These were Catholics in a country where the vast majority of citizens were Protestant, and they viewed the Irish as a threat to their jobs. The Irish were accused of being criminals, rapists, and worse. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. History just repeats over and over again. Over and over again. Yep. 
and we never learn ever no no and you would think with like the age of internet we would like get our shit together and figure out like wait wait we're doing this again yep but yep. no so wait did her parents come over yes. to america because of the okay with how many kids um i am getting they didn't come over with any kids i'm getting to okay. when they came over i'm gonna just uh, i'm talking about the potato famine now so that we have some historical context going what prompted so many Irish to leave Ireland in record numbers? Well, the potato famine, which most people know. And this is some quick background. First of all, Ireland was part of the UK at the time, the United Kingdom. They were not an independent country as they are today, the Republic of Ireland. And they wouldn't be until 1921 after a lot of conflict between the UK and pro-independent Irish. In part spurred by the Great Potato Famine. Next, Ireland was represented in the House of Lords by landowners, and most of the people who are landowners in Ireland were not the Irish, they were British. And they weren't potato farmers. Right, exactly. Until 1829, Irish Catholics were not allowed to own or rent land, vote, or even hold elected office. That's 80% of the population at that time, plus or minus. Those who owned the land often lived in England. They were absentee landowners who paid the Irish working the land very little for their labor. And the land that tenant farmers rented by way of crops, they would give their landowner crops to pay for their land use, was often too small to grow very much at all. The food they got was whatever was left after giving the landlord his share. Around the mid-18th century, the potato was introduced to Irish farmers. At first, they were like, what? We don't want this but it quickly became their main crop and staple food for their families. So it, they would grow crops like peas and other things for the landowners and they would make the potatoes for themselves. It was affordable, grew easily, and it could feed their family. Besides, there were laws making corn and wheat too expensive to grow. Corn laws, they were called. Which is kind of funny because I read one of those bodice rippers. Zelda gives me a hard time about sometimes. And, but I love the historical romances and it talked about the corn laws because they were kind of put in place because people were making gin they were making alcohol oh, interesting yeah i didn't know that so in 1845 the potato crops started to fail potato blight started to spread over the crops killing them but where did this blight come from well it's been traced back to toluca valley mexico I, oh, I didn't hear that. I knew it came from, I thought it came from the United States, actually. It kind of did, but it started in Toluca Valley, Mexico, and then it gradually made its way across the United States. So the potato famine, or I should say the potato blight started in the United States. U U.S. farmers were having problems with it, but it wasn't as such a core part of our diet and our economy as it was in Ireland. So in 1843, it did affect American crops. Now, the theory is that ships leaving Baltimore, Boston, and New York City headed for Europe brought the potatoes, causing it to spread throughout Ireland and Europe, particularly Belgium, northern France, the Netherlands, and southern England. But no one was as dependent on the potato as the Irish were. It was an affordable crop. They could feed their families. As the crops died, the Irish requested the assistance of Queen Victoria and Parliament. Corn laws were repealed. But it was too late as the Irish people were in trouble by then. And it takes time to grow new crops. Mm -hmm. It would get increasingly worse as time went, with many Irish people dying of starvation or disease. 
1847 has been reported to be the worst year of the famine and is known as Black 47. Naturally, many Irish left Ireland to save their families. And like I said, over 2 million left. One third of the country, right? Um, That would have been one quarter, I believe. I think there was 8 million, but yeah, I think it, but if it, they lost one third of their population. Between death and, and, and yeah, and flight. Yeah, they, they don't even call it like um, Im, like immigrating. Mm-hmm. They literally flew. They It was flight. Yeah. It wasn't immigration. It was, yeah, flight. Well, I like and that. I don't think the Irish population has even yet recovered from that loss. No. I don't think it has either. You know what I didn't realize about the potato famine? Like, I've heard about it, and my degree is in mm-hmm. history, so I at one point it was part of my brain. Um, that, like just walking out to their crops like when it was first detected mm-hmm. it was the rotting smell mm. that red like that they knew that something was wrong was the actual smell of the fields and their crops and that's just a scary thought like that's how they survived was on potatoes yeah. well 1.5 million came t- to america over 1 million irish would die between 1845 to 1852 in ireland due to the famine and it didn't just affect Ireland. Over 100,000 other Europeans would also die as a result. And little known fact for some is that this also helped spur the revolutions of 1848. And that helped result in lots of German immigrants. And in fact, over a million German immigrants came to the United States during the same time period as the Irish. So lots of immigration that time. But they didn't quite, quite face the backlash that the Irish did, the Germans. And this is, you know, is an interesting topic on its own, but we have other things to discuss. However, there's a good couple podcasts to listen on this subject. There's Stuff You Missed in History that covered it, and History Extra podcast has covered it. And I'll have some links on the webpage for more information if you want to learn more about it. But it was during the potato famine that Amy's parents would come to America. The first to arrive was James Duggan, Amy's father. Now, I'm not 100% positive, but I believe he arrived aboard the SS Living Age. Well, that's a name. Yes, that was the name of the ship. Wow. It sailed from Liverpool, England and arrived at Boston on August 27, 1849. James was 13, traveling with his father, Thomas, and his four siblings, Mary, John, James, and Margaret. His mother, Catherine, wasn't with them, so I imagine she died before their journey. And if I am correct on this, then James was baptized on December 12th, 1835 at St. Finbar's in County Cork. That's where my ancestors are from. Really? Oh, nice. Yeah. I don't think that's unusual, though. Like, if you ask anybody with Irish heritage, they're like, County Cork. Like, that's always it. <laughs> always it. Have you been able to go back and visit? I, I, it's not. I know everybody claims to be Irish, especially in the March 17th, but... Um, it's not the side, and I, I don't know, Denise, if you feel this way too. I feel like when you do your genealogy, you have a side that you kind of associate with more mm-hmm. or that you're more like, I don't know, like magnetically drawn to. And yeah. for whatever reason, it's not my Irish side. I'm more drawn to my um, French side. So like when That's I, interesting. when I found out I had French heritage, which I didn't know, I was like, there it is. Like that, I feel that it's like that's where you'd gravitate towards. I don't know if everybody does that, but I feel like I kind of do. I, I get what you're saying. My problem is my Irish heritage is so far back. They came over in the mid 18th century that I'm more that you feel a little disconnected. Yeah, and I I haven't been able to find when they came over yet. 
They were O'Briens. So see, my maiden name is um, original was Driscoll now, but my original name was O'Driscoll. And I am only the second generation born in America. Oh, see, that makes a difference, wow. too, sometimes. But my my German ancestors and some others interest me more. And they, my German ancestors came during that time of revolutions of 1848. So they were part of that whole influx then. Yeah, on my dad's side, my grandmother was born in Germany and my grandfather was born in Ireland. Oh. So legitimately, my dad was the first. My dad's generation, his siblings were born in America and then all the cousins now so no we're not that far removed from um, ireland or germany that's kind of wow cool. that's okay. cool now james's wife mary ann kennedy was baptized in february 1835 at cloyne parish also in county cork her parents were patrick and mary kennedy but mary's mother died before 1840 and her father remarried to margaret walsh in 1840 Mary, her father, stepmother, and all but two of her half-siblings would leave Ireland around 1851. Two stayed behind with family because a lot of times they couldn't afford to bring everybody over. So they would bring as many as they could. And it was an it was a trip that people couldn't make if they were not in the best of health. Right. And the two that stayed behind were Martin and Roger. But I'm not quite sure what happened to Martin. I don't know if he ever came to the United States. There are a lot of Martin Kennedys. At that time. <laughs> it's like a John Smith or something. Yeah. I mean, this was easier to find because they were all on the ship together. You know, you could clump it. And that's like, oh, there's my clump. Now, <laughs> that sounds bad. Okay. No, but that's true. That's how you find people. Yes, it is. It's, a, it's like such a relief when you find that. Or when you find someone like a male named after like his first name is like a grandmother's maiden. Yep. Like, there they are. There they are. There they are. Exactly. Now, Roger did come to the United States and did quite well for himself, as his obituary described in the Hartford Current on February 7th, 1917. I think every newspaper I used was from the Hartford Current, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Roger Kennedy, one of Middletown's best-known citizens, dropped dead yesterday morning while showing a prospective tenant a small store in the South Farms District, which he owns. Mr. Kennedy had just unlocked the door and was about to step inside when he was stricken. Mr. Kennedy was born in County Cork, Ireland in 1847. Um, His father and mother left for America a short time later, but left him behind with relatives. In 1862, Mr. Kennedy came to America, arriving in Middletown on Good Friday morning, 1862. Perfect for the Irish Catholic. (laughs) Um, He attended the local schools and finally started out in a small way as a contractor, driving the piles and building the caissons for the old airline bridge. He gradually enlarged his business and 20 or more years ago was one of the best known contractors on the river. For years, he handled all the coal that was unloaded on the boats between Saybrook and Weathersfield. In 1894, he went into the ice business. In 1898, he sold out his coal business to the Milltown Coal Company. And he showed his public spirit about 15 years ago by donating the land for the buildings of the New England Enameling Company near Fort Hill. It was largely through his efforts that the company finally located here. So hmm. he became a successful man. The, the family worked, these families worked very hard and did very well for themselves. Mary Ann Kennedy and James Duggan married on January 11th, 1854 in Boston. On October 12th, 1854, almost nine months to the day, they had their firstborn child. Aw, that's sweet. Um, his name was John. And he was born in Boston. Sadly, he would die before 1857. 
and he wouldn't be the only child they would lose. In August 1859, they had a son, William, who died at 11 months old in July 1860. Mm. Mary's family left Massachusetts and made their way to Middletown, Connecticut. And the young Duggan family followed, sort of. Instead of settling down in that in Middlesex County, they settled in Litchfield County in the town of Milton, about 45 miles away. And that's where they would remain. In the 1860 census, I found the family with two daughters, Mary Ann and Ellen, and three other Irish immigrants living with them. James was now a landowner with real estate valued at $650, something that he could not have been in Ireland. But soon the Civil War began. And James, who was on a path to becoming a naturalized citizen, answered the call for soldiers to serve in the Union, enlisting in Company K of the 14th Connecticut Infantry in May 1862. He mustered in three months later with a Springfield rifle he was handed under the command of Captain Robert Gillette, leaving his three children and pregnant wife behind. His unit headed out in a march towards Washington, D.C., making it near Boonesboro, Maryland, at the end of the Battle of South Mountain on September 14, 1862. Three days later, James would find himself in his very first battle, the Battle of Antietam. I think I said that correct. If I said that wrong, listeners, you can send me a correction so I don't do that again. Okay, now this battle had Union General George B. McClellan's army faced off against the Army of Northern Virginia led by General Robert E. Lee. It is noted as the bloodiest day in U.S. history, with over 22,000 dead, wounded, or missing. Oh, my gosh. James' regiment only lost 21 soldiers that day to death. 88 were wounded and 28 were missing. The next battle the 14th faced was the Battle of Fredericksburg in Fredericksburg, Virginia, on December 10th. This battle would last for four days, starting on December 11th. This time it was General Burnside versus General Lee. Now, the original plan that Burnside had was to cross the Rappahannock River in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and get to Richmond before the Confederacy could stop them to take over their capital. However, delays, bureaucratic delays, of course, prevented the plan from taking place. And once the army did cross the Rappahannock, Lee's army was there waiting for them. Basically, I mean, I'm kind of summing it up really quickly. So military historians don't come after me, but if you need us in a correction, do so. Yeah, the Union lost, with Burnside retreating on December 14th, and it was a rough loss for the Union. And James Duggan's regiment, which had 90, had 90 wounded and 10 dead from this. Duggan's wow. unit wouldn't face any more major battles until spring, the first being the Battle of Chancellorsville in Spotsylvania, Virginia, versus General Stonewall Jackson, and that was in April 1863, and that was another Confederate victory. Then, on July 2nd, 1863, they arrived at their next battle, likely James Duggan's last, the Battle of Gettysburg. The 14th Connecticut Infantry, which started at around 900 men at at their first battle, was now made up of only 170 men. A lot had deserted, some had died and gotten wounded, but Duggan was still there. They arrived as the fighting came to an end for the day on the 2nd of July, and on July 3rd, the last day of which would turn out to be the last day of battle, Duggan and his fellow soldiers took their positions. They were going to be guarding a fence. Over 12,000 other soldiers also took their positions on the Union side. General Robert E. Lee ordered Lieutenant General James Longstreet to take Cemetery Hill in a battle that was now called Pickett's Charge. Mm -hmm. 
It was named after Major General George Pickett, who was one of Longstreet's three generals serving underneath him. Alongside Duggan's regiment were other men led by General George Meade. And Meade thought that Lee was going to make this charge. He was anticipating it. So he had the soldiers in different positions to protect the hill. During the charge, the 14th would capture the colors of two Confederate regiments, the 1st and 14th Tennessee Infantries. In the end, the charge failed, resulting in the loss of 50% of the Confederate force that day. Woohoo! <laughs> the 14th lost 10 men, 52 were wounded, and 4 missing. So now they're down to like 108 soldiers in the 14th Connecticut. And they had started uh, with 900 or something? Mm-hmm. I suspect that James Duggan was one of the men injured at Gettysburg, or at least during their pursuit of General Lee. Because in August 1863, Duggan was transferred to the 23rd Company, 2nd Battalion Veteran Reserve Corps, or as they were otherwise known, the Invalid Corps. Mm. Basically, partially disabled or injured soldiers who could serve in a light duty capacity. There were two battalions in the VRC, the second made up of men with more serious disabilities, such as a lost limb or other serious injury. So this tells us a little bit about what happened to James probably at Gettysburg or soon after is he, he did have a serious injury of some sort that prevented him from doing battle anymore. James continued to serve until July, 1865 when he finally got to go home. When James returned from the war, he had four children. Now Mary Ann, Ellen, Lizzie, and John Francis. Wait, hold the phone. Mm -hmm. How did he have four children while he was off at war? Did they have three before before he left? He had three. Okay. Well, he had three before he left and his wife was pregnant with one. Okay. That clears things up. Because okay. I think I would have been really irritated if I'd gone off to war and come <laughs> home to more children than I left with. Yeah, that would have been a little surprising, right? I would have questions. And his the last son was born while he was fighting. Making up for lost time, though, James and Mary had twins next in 1866. Oh, Catherine wow. and Caroline. Followed by Amy, Maggie, Julia, and Lucy. Oh, my goodness. Good on them. Yeah. Of these children, only four would marry. And boy, did I find some interesting stories about Amy's siblings and her nieces and nephews. We're going to start with the oldest living sibling, Mary Ann Duggan. She was nine years older than Amy, and she married Hugh Malahan around 1880, a son of Irish immigrants. And they had two sons, Bernard and James. So these are Amy's nephews. I don't have much to say on James other than he relocated to Brooklyn, New York sometime before 1918. Um, and he got married and had a daughter. And for a time, he owned and operated Malahan Locks in Brooklyn. Hmm. That's about all I know about him. <clears throat> but I do have a lot more on Bernard and his children. So Bernard was Mary Ann's oldest, born in October 1882. He was hardworking, successful, and in the census, I saw progression, starting with working as a clerk at a lady's clothing shop to later being a manager and partner in the shop that would bear his name. Nice. Bernard married Teresa O'Meara. Guess what? She's a daughter of Irish immigrants. In 1913, he was 31 and she 29. This whole, all these family, there's, there's nobody getting married under age, Zelda. I love hearing that. Yeah. I'm so tired of seeing 12 and 13 year olds get married. Right? Yeah, but that was old. I mean, getting married at 31, I mean, he, he was focused well, yeah. on his career or whatever. 
But and and she got married at twenty nine, which was not young. So, no. but I think it was a northeast thing because all the like almost this whole family got married a little older. Well, you know, we'd like to think of it as being super common that people got married as teenagers, but it wasn't as common as we think it was because mm-hmm. if you, especially if you were a working family, you needed to marry people who knew how to run a household. And so we're seeing, you know, especially in the 1800s, there's a shift toward getting married a little bit later. But it wanes and waxes because then it drops again when we're talking at like the 40s and 50s, you know, and it depends on the relative wealth of what's going on because people who are poor tend to marry younger. I was just going to say socioeconomic um, played a lot in, in what age you were married. Right. Okay. The three that lived were Bernard Jr. or Bud, as he went by, Kathleen and Vincent. And Vincent, being the youngest, was born in 1924. Bernard's career success continued as his family grew. And for a time, he stopped managing the store and started selling life insurance. Hmm. Then Black Tuesday happened, Hmm. October 29th, 1929. And the Great Depression soon followed. In the early days of the Great Depression, Bernard Malahan's family was still okay. Bernard was working and had a home valued at $10,000, according to the 1930 census. That's a nice house. Yeah, it is. And 10 years later, the census would tell a different story. It hit his family hard. No longer did they own their home. They now rented a place for $25 a month. Ooh. No longer did Bernard sell insurance. In fact, he had been unemployed for 104 weeks. Oh, my God. That poor, that poor family. Yeah. He did work as a timekeeper on a a sewer storm project for the WPA, the Works Projects Administration, an infrastructure program developed under President Franklin Roosevelt that put over 8 million people to work. And because of that, I think it helped him recover and the family recover. And Bernard was able to return to work, this time for the, the Torrington Company. It was a company that originally manufactured sewing needles, but later diversified a bit. Manufacturing at that plant ramped up once World War II began. And the plant was in Torrington, Connecticut. And Torrington Company had a contract with the U.S. government to make surgical needles, as well as needle bearings used in military aircraft. Hmm. The company still kind of exists to this day. It's just under Japanese ownership and has a different name altogether. But Interesting. Bernard retired in 1954, but what of his children? What happened to them? We'll start with Bernard Malahan Jr., Bud who was Amy's grandnephew. He was born in 1917. And we have a postmaster alert. (gasps) We really need to come up with a special tune for that. Yeah, a little. I love postmasters. (laughs) I found Bud's time as a postmaster interesting. Um, In 1952, he was appointed as the acting postmaster for Torrington, Connecticut, but applied for the permanent position, but he was denied because he lacked the necessary experience. Hmm. Now, when I, I'm about to read something about his experience and his work history, and I, I still, it makes me even more confused. But they allowed him to stay acting postmaster for two full years. Oh, I hate it when they do that. Oh my gosh. You see this happen in large organizations <laughs> where they're like, mm, you're good enough to do the job, but we don't want to give you the title or the pay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's crap. But but wait, there's more when it comes to Bud. I find that his obituary tells the tale the best, though. So this is from the Hartford Current on September 5th, 2002. 
written by Constance Nyer. So you know it's a good one when they have an actual author listed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernard J. Bud Malahan, a retired state government official who also was a freelance writer, died Wednesday at his home in Winstead. He was 85. Malahan was acting postmaster for the city when he joined the staff of the State Development Commission as a publicist in 1956. He edited several commission publications and managed the Connecticut building at the Eastern States Exposition in West Springfield, Massachusetts. He became supervisor of state publications in 1963, taking on responsibilities that included compiling and editing the annual Digest of Administrative Reports and other publications. Malahan retired in 1975. Malahan was a writer whose articles appeared in the New York Times, Connecticut Magazine, Yankee Magazine, the Litchfield County Times, the Torrington Register, and other publications. He graduated from Torrington High School, was employed by the Torrington Company, and later worked in the FBI's fingerprint division in Washington, D.C. Wow. He returned to Torrington in 1942 and was employed by the U.S. Postal Service. He served with the U.S. Navy in the Philippines during World War II. Yeah, I I found his... um, draft registration card and his employer was FBI. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and this was the nephew of Amy. Yeah. Grand nephew. Grand nephew. Yeah. Now Bernard's had a brother, Vincent. He was the youngest of the three siblings and he was seven years younger than Bud. Like his older brother, he enlisted in the military and served during World War II. Although Vincent served in the U.S. Army, not the Navy. After his time in the Army, Vincent graduated from Dartmouth College in 1946. In 1964, at the age of 40, he married Jean McCallum at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. Oh, my. And the Lady Chapel. So it wasn't in the oh, in the main. big one. Oh, the Lady Chapel. So pretty, mm-hmm. though. It is. It's beautiful. Jean was just a few days short of turning 40 herself. They would have no children. And like his brother, he lived an interesting life with a varied career. And I found his obituary. This time he was living in on Cape Cod. In Barnstable County. Oh, my. Massachusetts. And it talks about his funeral mass and says, Mr. Malahan has been a resident here since 1964, died of brain cancer last Thursday. He was born in Torrington, Connecticut, and was graduated from Dartmouth College, class of 1946. Received a master's degree from Columbia University in 1951. Mr. Malahan served on the staffs of the United Nations Secretariat in New York City the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and in the editorial department of the New York Times. For several years, he was a member of the faculties at Boston State College and New York University. During World War II, he served in the Army, and he owned businesses. In recent years, he was an employee of the IRS. Oh, yay! So I these, do like IRS agents, too. Yeah, I mean, these, these are men who had some great success. Now, their sister... The cream of the Oreo for the Malahan brothers was Kathleen Malahan. And she was born in December 1918. And I said cream of the Oreo. That's why I call my middle child. So she doesn't feel like she's on the outs, that she's the cream, the best part. (laughs) In January 1946, Kathleen married Connecticut native and World War II vet Charles Joseph Hagel. And the couple had three children, two girls and one boy. Charles would spend most of his professional life working for General Motors. But that job sometimes meant moving, as it did in 1966 for the Hagel family. They left Connecticut and settled in Norwalk, Ohio, with their two youngest. 
And I believe their oldest, Kathleen, remained in Connecticut to finish attending college because she was at, the, at that age and she wasn't with them. Charles died six years later in 1972. By this time, their son, Charles Jr., had graduated, but their youngest, who was 10 years younger than Charles Jr., had not. So I think that's why Kathleen remained in Ohio so her daughter could finish her schooling. Naturally, you know me, I have to talk about Amy's great grandnieces and nephews about these children. And I'm going to start with the oldest, Kathleen Hagel. In June, the one who stayed behind in Connecticut. In June 1970, Kathleen married Charles Dignam Morgan in a Catholic ceremony. The couple departed for California and had their first of two children there. And they had their second child would be 10 years younger than their first. So there was quite a spread. And they would spend most of their married years in California, but they did come back east for a time as Charles finished his education at Tufts University School of Medicine to be a psychiatrist. And he got that degree in 1973. Kathleen Hagel Morgan, though, would not be around to see both of her children enter adulthood. On August 9th, 1983 in San Diego County, Kathleen died at the age of 35. And I could not mm. find an obituary or anything. Mm. So I don't know why she died. But curious about what happened to her family next, I just took a quick look and was shocked at what I found. First, the good news. Her youngest child, a daughter, is a physician today. Oh, nice. And doing well. Now for the bad news. Her former husband is on the sex registry list. Oh, God. So, the psychiatrist. In 1999, Charles Morgan added a Wisconsin license, medical license, to his um, California license, and he kept the California license as he moved to Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Nine years later, on June 30th, 2008, Charles Morgan was charged with two counts of sexual exploitation by a therapist and two counts of third degree sexual assault. He pled no contest to sexual exploitation and the third degree sexual assault charges were dismissed. He was sentenced to nine months jail time, 200 hours community service, and said he could never be a psychiatrist again. Wow. His Wisconsin medical license was suspended, and in 2011, he surrendered it. Just Wisconsin? What about California? I was about to get to that. Okay. As soon as California learned of his crime, they revoked his license to practice. There was no suspending for a time. It was gone. Good. And I got all that, all everything I just shared, I got from his the medical license information from their states. Wow. And they they even have all the information on what happened. They don't put the victim's name, which I'm glad, but I know exactly what he did to her. Uh, Wow. But I'm really impressed. I think it's because of the timing in 2008. But she actually found the courage to come forward and say something about five days after. God bless her. And she had saved um, a piece of evidence with his semen on it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and they actually tested it. Yeah. And got him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank God, like everybody was on the ball. Yeah. The psychiatrist is still alive and remains on the sex registry list in North Carolina. And to say I was quadruple checking this is not a joke. I didn't want to put somebody out on and say without making sure I had the right family member, but this is correct. Now, Kathleen Malahan Hagel's other two children have something in common and had a happier existence than their sister who died young. Despite being 10 years apart and different genders, both were National Merit Scholars, or at least semi-finalists. 
I'm going to talk about one though, and I'm going to talk about both. And it feels odd because she's still living and she's, a, again, the great grandniece of Amy Archer Gilligan. But once I learned about her, I just had to because um, she's fucking amazing. <laughs> and since she's sort of in the public eye, she even has her own Wikipedia page. I just had to share what I learned. I even emailed her mm-hmm. um, at an email I had to see if I could get something from her. Like, hey, I would love it if you say this is cool. But I didn't. But I'm going to share her name anyway, because it is public. So unlike her brother, who hitchhiked 5000 miles during the summer between his junior and senior years of high school, when he was just 17, Nancy Hagel focused on more academic pursuits rather than adventures. Well, at least as far as I know her, if she had adventures, they didn't make the papers. So here's a few things to say about Nancy. She was active in high school athletics. She was active in high school band playing the trumpet. She was active in Mu Alpha Theta, the school math club. She graduated from high school earning several scholarships, including one from the National Society of Professional Engineers, Lady Auxiliary. I believe that one was for $4,000. Nice. And she graduated high school in 1977. So that was quite a bit of money. Mm-hmm. And she secured the National Merit Scholarship, meaning she was a National Merit finalist. Good on her. Mm-hmm. She was one of four speakers at her high school graduation. And she was accepted and attended the University of Notre Dame, majoring in metallurgical engineering. Holy moly. She was a sharp cookie. Mm -hmm. At Notre Dame, she quickly became first trumpet in band and joined the marching band. How fun. Which I'm just like, that's a lot of time to put into something when you're also doing such a hard major like engineering. She finished school in four years. Graduating on May 17th, 1981, summa cum laude with a 3.987 GPA. Whoa. And she was in a tie. And so she was co-valedictorian. Wow. Only the second woman valedictorian at Notre Dame. Wow. Now, I think they only started letting women into Notre Dame around 1975. So It was 1971. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had to look it up. And that was the first one admitted. So she probably didn't graduate until a couple of years later. As co-valedictorian, she spoke at graduation following the other co-valid, whatever. Her speech lasted around 10 minutes and it was interrupted several times by applause. Nice. And I read part of it and I'm going to share it because it's amazing. I believe that our greatest hope and vision is for a world where life is respected as the gift that it is. The education we have received has allowed us to see ourselves as part of a world community. We need to realize that the wasteful loss of life, whether it occurs in a speeding car or at the barrel of a gun, whether it is performed by an individual in the name of revenue or by the state in the name of justice, whether its victim is a classmate of ours or a peasant in a small foreign country, is a loss we all share. In the eyes of the Creator, there is never any question of them or us. We are one body and we suffer together, most often and most sadly from self-inflicted wounds. Our simple hope is that someday soon we will stop hurting ourselves. A world where life is respected means much more than simply the absence of violent action and death. It means the presence of an environment that allows and encourages all people to live rather than to merely exist. If we look at our world and our society, I think we have to admit such an environment is not widespread. We need to work to transform those structures and systems, be they economic, political, social, 
that prevent people from living their lives freely and fully. Wow. I think you can apply that whole speech to today now. That's still. amazing. So did she go on to become a really amazing engineer? Or is she a politician now? Because... Well, I'm still not done with graduation because I have a little surprise. Oh, my gosh. So you would think after that type of speech, she the next speaker might be a little nervous, right? Mm-hmm. So he had a lot to live up to. But he managed. After all, he was the president of the United States, President Ronald Reagan. Wow. And I have a picture of her shaking his hand. But her accomplishes did not stop there. From Notre Dame, Nancy headed to University of California, Berkeley, with a National Science Foundation grant toward her master's degree in physical metallurgy. And she stayed there to earn her PhD. Nancy was a Humboldt Foundation scholar, Fulbright Senior Scholar at Hebrew University, and Kellogg Foundation Scholar. Her academic writing has appeared in 140 publications. Oh, my gosh. She has worked as a professor at UCLA and Fairfield University in Connecticut. She worked there for a time when her mother was dying, so she could be there. She was a distinguished professor at Naval Postgraduate School. Today, she is the director of Material Science Center in the National Renewable Energy Lab and director of Research Corps. Oh, my God. That's crazy. She's amazing. Wow. Yeah. I bet she has like five adopted dogs, too. Ugh. Who knows? And like rescues <gasps> horses in her spare time. You know? Wow. She makes me feel like I've done nothing with my life. I know. I'm like <laughs> such an underachiever. Yeah. But I don't think she, I don't believe she's married. I don't know if she's in a relationship. She's still Nancy, ha you know, she's Dr. Nancy Hagel now. So, <laughs> but yeah. Who cares, man? Oh, no, I don't <laughs> care. I'm just saying. Yeah. Sometimes it's easier to do stuff when you're not tied down. <laughs> yep. And she's not the Nancy Hagel who's the mother of Catherine Hagel, right? Right. That was Catherine Hagel was her sis, her sister, the one who was married to the psychiatrist. No, no the actress. Hagel, Catherine the actress. Hagel. Oh no, yeah. no, 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 no. Different spelling, even. Oh, okay. Okay. They have. They. It's funny that her mom's name is Nancy Hagel. Yeah. The actress Catherine Hagel. I, that's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. I think I believe they're spelled differently. Even. Okay. So that's the descendants of Amy's sister Marianne. Amy's sister, Ellen, also found some happiness. She didn't marry until she was 30 in 1889 to John Howard. And this couple had six children, first in 1891 and the last in 1904. Her husband worked hard to provide for the family and worked at a clock factory. Then tragedy struck. And this is from the Hartford Current on December 27, 1909. On Christmas Eve, as John Howard, with his pockets and arms filled with gifts for his family, was about to board a trolley car for his home in Thomaston, he dropped dead in front of Carney's drugstore in Waterville. Oh, good God. Yeah. A few minutes before, while conversing with Robert Henderson of this town, he appeared to be in excellent health and spirits. He was 52 years old and for many years worked as a cabinet maker with the Seth Thomas Clock Company. So, I mean, just... Wow. And it was a huge loss. Clearly, it would be. And the family made it work. Ellen died in 1926 at age 67. And as for her children, Amy's grandnieces and nephews, the oldest, James, served in World War I and died at 36, right before Christmas 1927. Wow. And John Timothy, 
served in the U.S. Marine Corps during World War I and worked as a trolley conductor. But like his older brother, his life ended prematurely in March 1939 at the age of 45. The youngest Eugene is a bit of a mystery. He moved to New York City and worked as a waiter at a hotel, according to the 1930 census. And in 1933, I found him on the ship manifest for the Duchess of Bedford. It was a cruise liner working as a cabin waiter. And that's the last I could find of him. Hmm. Joseph Patrick worked as a timekeeper at Seth Thomas Clock Company. He was sent to France during World War I with the U.S. Army, and he worked in the medical corps. After he returned home, he married a daughter of Czech immigrants, Anna Novyovsky, and they had a couple children. He even chaired the Democratic Town Committee in Thomaston, Connecticut. Daughter Mary never married and worked as a postal clerk most of her life. Um, she lived her along for having life. a good, solid job. Yep. Daughter Alice was born in 1899, married Frederick McLeod in 1922. They both worked and never had children. Um, and a trigger warning, if you want, you can just skip ahead 30 seconds. Um, Fred's body was found in his car in September 1951. Cause of death, suicide. Mm. Alice died 10 years later at the age of 62. Amy's sister, Margaret, married late in life at the age of 41 to 49-year-old Adelbert Wilson, and both would die in 1933. Now, according to testimony at Amy's trial in 1919, Margaret had been committed for insanity, but was now just fine and living at home with her husband. So that's the first count of insanity other than Amy. <laughs> I was going to say, other than Amy. Mm -hmm. oh, we, we've still got more. Of the remaining Duggan siblings, at least four were thought to be insane, officially. Oh. But there was more, I think. We'll start with the youngest two, Julia and Lucy. According to Amy's sister, Mary Duggan Malahan, their sister Julia was insane, having been institutionalized at least once before living with Amy. Because, yes, she did live with her sister. I did find Julia living on her own in the city directory, working as a clerk in 1909. I was unable to find her in the 1910 census, so I'm thinking that might have been when she was institutionalized. Do we know where she was institutionalized? No, she was it was very vague in the testimony. And, and I think, you know, sometimes when you're in between places, like people got missed. And it could have been that was what was going on. She wasn't anywhere. Nobody counted her. Soon after, she went to live in the Archer House. She died on November 4th, 1912 at the Archer House. Cause of death listed as cirrhosis of the liver and valve heart disease. She was 40. Oh, what was her name? Julia Duggan. Oh, 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 oh. Julia Teresa Duggan. Yep. That was a 41. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So she, did she kill her own sister? That's a question. I mean, cirrhosis of the liver, I don't, unless she had major liver disease if she was having problems for a long time, I don't see her, her being allowed to drink alcohol. So who knows? But I do wonder. Because yeah, I, I could see Amy putting a, um, getting her a insurance policy. Yeah, and that's weird. I didn't even catch that. I had written down the name Julia Duggan, and I didn't yeah. even catch the fact that it was a maiden name. I, and I caught it because I had been doing all the research on the family at that point. So that's the only reason I caught it. Now, sister Mary, Mal oh, Mary Malahan also testified that their younger sister, Lucy, who was born in 1879, was an idiot child. <laughs> Ooh, that's so mean. I know, that's but that's, 
they used to call that. I know that's that. the official term, but still. And she said mm. that she said that Lucy died at the age of 10. Maybe it was an honest mistake on Mary's part, given that she was 22 years older than her sister, Lucy. Mm-hmm. But Lucy did not die at the age of 10. She died in 1903 at 24. Oh, my God. <laughs> Quite a difference. And idiot child I don't necessarily take as insanity. So as I mentioned earlier, Amy had twin sisters that were two years older than her, Catherine and Caroline. After Amy was arrested, she put Catherine in charge of Archer House. Neither twin ever married, and they lived their whole lives with each other. In fact, that makes me think of arsenic and old lace a little bit. Okay, sorry. Um, In fact, in the 1920 census, Catherine ran a dairy farm that Caroline helped work, as well as their older sister, Lizzie, or Elizabeth. Caroline died first in 1946. Catherine followed 10 years later. Again, during the trial of Amy, their sister Mary Malahan testified, and at one point, Catherine did as well, and she said that the reason Caroline could not appear at the trial was that she suffered from nervousness and face twitchings. Mm. So there was a mental illness going on there. And it seems that James and Mary Duggan spent a lot of their years caretaking for their mentally struggling children. Mary Ann Kennedy Duggan died in January 1915. Her husband, James, followed 10 months later. They were both in their early 80s, so they lived a long life. According to the testimony at the trial, Mary and Catherine said their parents did what they could for their children and that they were completely sane, that they were fine, they were normal. But they denied that all their ancestors were sane. But they said they didn't know their ancestors. They must have heard family stories. Mary in particular testified that three second cousins were committed to insane asylums. And that their grandfather and uncles died in insane asylums. That's a lot of people in one family. Yes, a lot. And what's interesting is, granted, not all the kids had children, so that probably helped. But I'm not seeing a lot of insanity going down. Mm-hmm. Well, and were you able to back up those those things no. that they said about their uncles? And I was about to say that because I couldn't verify that information because I couldn't find everybody because of the common names and how many Irish were here and... If I had more time, I could probably eventually get there, but it would take a lot of time. As for the remaining siblings, Amy, Julia, and Margaret were not the only ones institutionalized at one point in their lives. Mm -hmm. The first one to be institutionalized, as far as I can tell, was their brother, John Francis Duggan. In 1902, he was committed by the court of probate to the Connecticut Hospital for the Insane in Middletown, Connecticut. The same hospital Amy Amy ended up in. Yep. His diagnosis was dementia praecox. It's a term no longer in use, so I had to look it up. It was thought to be premature dementia or precocious madness. And it was first used the term in 1891. And they used it to describe a condition where cognitive functioning and memory attention and goal-directed behavior was disrupted. Mm -hmm. At the time of John's diagnosis, it was thought to be a condition one never recovered from. And quite the opposite, it would get worse over time. Eventually, that theory would be thrown out. They realize it doesn't necessarily get worse. It's not progressive like that. And once they did that, they gave it a new name, schizophrenia. Ah. Wow. Yeah. Well, schizophrenia does run in families. Yes. I was going to say, it's, there's clearly something going on in their family. Yes, clearly. Wow. Now, during her testimony, again, Mary Malahan said that her sister Lizzie, who was born in 1860, Although I got to tell you, Lizzie kept changing her age to like her sister. 
but she made herself 10 years <laughs> younger. Wow. She really wanted to be young for life. Anyhow, um, she was born in 1860, had been insane since the early 1890s. In 1901, um, Mary said that Lizzie fell from a window, hurting herself in such a way that she was an invalid for the rest of her life. Their parents cared for Lizzie until their deaths. Then she went to live with the twins, but they could only care for her for so long. Lizzie was placed in the same hospital as John and Amy by the 1930 census. Well, all three of them in the same hospital. Yep. She died in 1961, wow. a year before Amy. She lived to be 100 or 101. I don't know wow. how the exact date of death, so I'm not sure. Wow. I have some fast facts. Some of these are kind of fun. Okay. Um, Torrington, Connecticut, where a lot of the family lived, was the birthplace of American abolitionist leader John Brown. Today, the town is part of the Connecticut African-American Freedom Trail. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. There were a lot of Duggins living around Hartford, Connecticut, and the, the counties that this Duggan family lived in at the time of Amy's family. And whether or not they're related, I don't know. It's just too much to sort through in a two-week time period. Uh, among them was a Monsignor Thomas S. Duggan, and he wrote a book in that was published in 1930, The Catholic Church in Connecticut. And I earlier I mentioned the Duchess of Bedford. It was a cruise liner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was quite the cruise ship. It was built in Glasgow in 1928. And when Eugene Howard worked on it, it was only five years old. The Duchess was a very lucky ship. So in fact, in 1933, while Eugene was working aboard, she hit an iceberg in the Straits of Belle Isle, Newfoundland. And only had minor damage. So much better ship than the Titanic. And according to duchessofbedford.com, during World War II, after she had been commandeered by the British Navy into use for the war effort, she sank a U-boat, was shot at and bombed at on numerous occasions, and still survived. Oh my gosh. And that was the family tree of Amy E. Duggan Archer Gilligan. That was a lot of information. I'm mostly fascinated by the fact that um, obviously mental um, issues ran mm -hmm. in her family. And they say that certain mental conditions can be genetic. So, yeah. And I'm curious how far back that went. You weren't able to find it. No, not in, in ancestors, but in descendants or current. I couldn't find it in any descendants that, that showed up. At least not in, you know, in nothing that popped up in a news article. And it seemed like most of the descendants seemed okay, at least successful. But her current, her siblings. That's a lot out of that many siblings to have at I least know. four that had mm -hmm. psychological issues. That's just crazy. So does, clearly it ran in the family. Yeah. It does make me wonder, though, if Mary Archer had been able to stay married and had children, would it had passed to her? Right. Because, because the ones who had the mental illness... Issues were the ones who did not have children. Well, thankfully. I mean, I hate yeah. to say that, but thank God it didn't continue. Because it sounds like um, it was serious mental illness. Right. Like well, clearly she was a murderer. She well, yeah. And and um and it, like I said she wasn't like a serial killer who has this like necessity to like murder for whatever reasons, whether it's like psychological or sexual or whatever. She felt justified in what she was doing to some mm -hmm. point and was came off as like she wasn't caught for so long because she seemed like a good catholic person like yeah. a religious woman 
And I, I have some trivia. Oh, I'd um, love to hear it. On the movie, particularly. The movie came after the Broadway play. Mm-hmm. Um, the Broadway play was one of the long, longest standing Broadway plays uh, at, for that time. Wow. And it was loosely based on the story of Amy Archer. Mm-hmm. But one of the interesting things, um, it was in the movie, it was sisters, movie and play. It was right. not just the one sister. It was two sisters that were doing this. And um, the Brewster sisters. Right. And one of the things I found really interesting is one of the actresses, the one who played the sister, mm-hmm. 20 years before they filmed the movie, she helped nurse a vaudeville performer back to health. And that Broadway performer was Carrie Grant, who went on to play Mortimer Brewster. Oh, my goodness. Which is so, I thought that was super interesting. I love also, that. If you have not seen the movie Arsenic and Old Lace, I mean, I don't want to make light because this movie is a comedy. Oh, no, no, no. I think everybody should see that movie. I Yeah, it is. It's a comedy. So it's not really based on this woman who murdered people. But right. It, it's a very, it's a good movie. Right. Um, I should warn people, though, it's a black comedy. I mean, like a dark comedy. It's and, a, it does definitely dark comedy. And I recently showed it to my husband and he... <laughs> He was not as into it as I was. Now, granted, he doesn't really like movies and that's, you know, his cross to bear. But <laughs> he just did not find it as funny. I'm like laughing all over the oh, place. Oh, I love that movie. And I, it's one of my favorites. But it, it, some people can't handle that type of humor. So if you're not one who can handle a dark comedy, don't do it to yourself. But it's hysterical. Well, and it is a black and white. It's an old black and white. If yeah. you're not a fan of black and whites, you won't be as interested. Not true. Um, Another one of the um, trivias for the, and anyone who listens to my podcast knows Mm -hmm. that one of my favorite things to do when I can't sleep at night is I go on IMDb Mm -hmm. and read the trivia of my favorite movies. Oh, so (laughs) um, I highly recommend it. It's one of the. Oh, I do that while I'm watching the movie, but okay. (laughs) I do it and I love it on old movies. Um, And it's an, this movie is an early example of aggressive product placement. The Bell Company, that became Mm -hmm. Pacific Bell, obviously, provided the film with one of the new models of the French telephone, which had a microphone and earpiece in the same unit, which... That was new. Yeah, and they used it a lot in the film. Yeah, they Um, did. Frank Capra related. He was the director. And you'll know who Frank Capra is in a second if you're not a listener. Mm -hmm. I mean, a watcher of old movies. Frank Capra, the director, related to the role of Mortimer Brewster in the film... Because like his character, he too grew up with an older brother that had abused him as a child mm. and turned out to be a criminal, which is a major part of that movie, yeah. which is not taken from the actual story. Um, right. And it's loosely based. They took the story of a sweet old lady. Um, Killing her residence. Yeah. Yeah. Murdering her residence. Um, the movie was uh, being filmed during World War II. Well, mm-hmm. before we entered World War II. Right. And um, they actually gave Frank Capra an extension to report to duty after the bombing of Pearl Harbor so that he could finish editing the film. Oh, wow. The, Thank goodness. The film was not released until after World War II, but he found Frank Capra, while he was in London, would hear people yell the word charge, like the Teddy Roosevelt character mm-hmm. in the movie. Yes. Yes. He kept saying, like, why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? That's in my movie. He found out later that the um, War Department had released the film to military before it was released to the public. So they were actually mimicking a character in his movie, and he didn't know that because he didn't know the movie had been released to them. 
the other thing that I thought was really weird and and maybe because of my podcast name and I'm always I always feel like genealogy and old stories always tie into like paranormal mm-hmm. stories at least I could not find anything even though the Archer home is still standing right. today in Connecticut I cannot find any reports or records or stories about it being haunted really that surprises no, me me too and it's not even um i found several lists of the most haunted locations in connecticut the archer home is not listed as one you would have thought that at least somebody would have some kid or at least would have made up stories and it would yeah, have gone past exactly from, but nothing wow nothing. i can't can't find anything on that and i can't find anything on the connecticut home for the insane either which i thought was really weird too because that's always a big story too but it's a crazy story, and it's so fascinating that the that mental health issues were prevalent in her family. So, yeah, I we've never run into like this level of everybody, like almost yeah. everybody. Clearly, it was before them too. It didn't just start yeah. with with Amy and her siblings, and there it was, was in the family kind of... lore at least at the very least. So they knew right. that this was an issue, right? And, and I don't think they knew that they were murderous, but they were. Yeah, and they do get into, I mean, some of the articles and some of their testimony of the sisters dig into how Amy had some odd behavior before she got married the first time. So, like, she was asked to leave the school she was teaching at after a year. Oh. And and stuff like that. So, there were hints. Yeah, there were signs. Yeah. But she probably wasn't as bad as some of the other siblings or something, so it just seemed... Okay, she's just Less. eccentric. Yeah. And not a murderer. Yeah. And you know, she she's not gonna hurt anybody. Right. And, and she never really served she never served like jail jail time for She did for, actually for well, for about well, not six or seven sin- years. Yeah. Before she went to the hospital or Yeah, she was- before she went to the hospital. Okay. And then she was in the hospital for the rest of her life. rest of her life, which is longer than a lot of people who would have been sentenced to prison would have been at that time. Right. And she was only convicted of murdering her two husbands, right? Like, she wasn't actually No, she was not convicted committed. of murdering her husband. Um, who was she? Or her, both of them. I mean, um, it was five. She was, so she was arrested and tried for murder originally on five counts. And then she got, her lawyer got reduced to one single count, the murder of Franklin R. Andrews. Okay, so that's so that's fascinating. It was her, it was his sister that basically started the whole thing, correct? Mm-hmm. I think it was the combination of her sister and probably her second husband's family. So her okay. sister started it, and they got on board. Like, yeah, this is weird, and it just kept going from there until it, like, that, until the newspaper guy kind of picked up right. on it. Okay, so Franklin Franklin Andrews is one of the ones that she was convicted of killing. The only one she was technically convicted See? of killing. Out of 66. Is it, was it 66? Was it Well, there were 60. It, it says there were 60 deaths in the Archer home. When I counted that list of people who died in her home, I counted 69. Okay. And that includes her two husbands. And her sister. And it doesn't include every, the, a couple of the ones I mentioned later. So now some of them, the ones who were in their 90s, could very well have died of old age. Of and, old age. Correct. And some of them did live there for years. So like um, one of the people who was living in the home in 1910 was Urban Dunaway. And he was there in 1910, and he died in the home in 1914. So it was a while for him. He got to stick around. Yeah, so I, it could be that he did die of an illness. We, it's just or hard. 
he did not have money that that she would have been after. Right. I, Maybe he really just, was poor. The problem is it's so hard to say that all of them died by her because some left and some came back. And then, you right. know, it's hard to know which ones were murdered and which ones just happened to die because of their ages. Right. But that's unfortunate that, I mean, it, I mean, the outcome's still the same. She ended up dying in an insane asylum mm-hmm. and that would not be any different had she been convicted of killing 48 people or four people. I don't think it, it would have been, been the same. Yeah, yeah, it would have been the same outcome. Thank you so much for joining us, Kathy. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun. Just a little crazy, a little early for me, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that was our show. This was so good. Oh my gosh. And Kathy, it was so lovely to meet you. Thanks for being a part of Murderous Roots today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at MurderousRoots.com. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S.com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed. 